Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Fisher of Men podcast, part of Foundations in Christ. I am your host, Eric Straup, and we are about to embark on a three-part series on a very, very tough topic. We're going to discuss Catholicism. If you have a friend who is Catholic, if you have a family member who is Catholic, if you're coming out of the Catholic Church yourself, you'll want to tune in to these three episodes. <clears throat> I'm going to give you lots of information, um, and you'll be able to actually see on YouTube the presentation that I'm speaking of. Uh, it's an actual PowerPoint. And I have to say before I begin, this is a tough topic. Uh, it's an extremely difficult topic because this is something that can be ingrained in you. I start this program off with asking the question, are you Catholic or Christian? And one of the things when I was first saved, this is uh, going on two years ago now, one of the first thoughts I had was, I need to go get Catholics. Because when I started reading the Word of God, and understanding it, I realized the deception. There are 1.2 billion Catholics, billion with a B, in the world today, making Catholicism the second largest, most far-reaching, <clears throat> deceptive, false religion that ever existed in the history of the world. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are doing a backflip. So I'm going to ask you to keep an open mind, get your Bible, and just listen. There are many, many issues with the Catholic Church. Today, in episode one, I'm going to go over and cover some of the major ones that I think most people will recognize. And I'm going to finish today up with justification and sola scriptura, which is the authority of scripture. The next episode is going to be on the worship of Mary, and the last episode will be on the Mass. So if you're having difficulty with this, uh, with the idea of discussing this, please bear with me. Try to have an open mind, and I, I bring this information to you with love. As the Apostle Paul said, um, we have to deliver the truth out of a place of love. So I want to begin with my history so that you understand I came completely from the Catholic faith. I was baptized as an infant in St. Andrew's Church in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, uh, a few months old. <clears throat> My mother's side came from three generations of Catholics. Uh, some of my earliest memories of my grandparents were of them walking around the house in the morning with rosary beads in their hands. <clears throat> my father converted to Catholicism when I was in probably the fourth or fifth grade. At age eight, I became an altar boy. Uh, I was going to Catholic school. I went to Catholic grade school, um, first through fifth grade. 
I received all of my sacraments, uh, beginning with penance in this in the second grade or I, maybe the first grade, and then the first Holy Communion, which I remember being in the second grade. I was confirmed when I was in the eighth grade. I um, went to Catholic high school for my freshman and sophomore year. I was sort of a troubled kid, so I bounced around a little bit. In fact, it probably cost me a Division I football scholarship because I transferred from one state, state championship team to another state championship team and then was transferring to another, uh, mostly because I was getting in trouble, but um, I was ruled ineligible to play my, my junior year. I couldn't be on the roster. <clears throat> so I, I practiced all season with the teams, but I was never able to be on the roster and playing games. So my junior year, I missed. But I went to Catholic high school my freshman and sophomore year. Growing up, I never missed mass. I don't ever remember missing mass, period. It just didn't happen. I mean, if you had the flu, you still went to Mass. Um, and that includes holy days of obligation. So uh, it was rare that we had just one Mass a week. Uh, in the Catholic faith, there's lots of holy days of obligation that you have to go. And as an altar boy, I was often serving Mass. Um, about every other month, you'd have 6.45 a.m. Mass that everybody had to serve. So um, it was rare that I only went to mass once a week. And that's from the time uh, uh, that I remember growing up until I graduated from high school. In fact, when I graduated from boot camp in the army, it was December 18th. I came home for the holidays before I went to my training and I served Christmas mass. So um, I was very ingrained in the Catholic faith. It was a rare weekend where we didn't have a priest at our house for a Sunday dinner or a Sunday evening. In fact, one of the priests that we were probably closest with uh, was on the front page of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette probably about a decade ago with 300 plus counts of child molestation. I've tried to look him up to see whatever happened to him, and I've never been able to find any information on him. But um, I never had an issue with him, although I'd been in a few situations where I could have, and uh, nothing ever happened. But uh, he was um, <clears throat> very close to our family growing up, and I couldn't even number the number of meals that he had with us on Sunday afternoons. So I say this all just to let you know that I came from the Catholic faith. I still have family in the Catholic faith um, that are practicing Catholics. And I understand how difficult it is when you grow up in this to change the way that you think about worship. One of the hardest things for me when I came to Christ was getting away from the ceremony of the Mass because nothing seemed legitimate to me. And it's really be because of the way I was raised. So I'm going to move on. Um, I want you to understand that the sources that I'm using for all of the information that I'm bringing forward are right from the Vatican. Um, there is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there is the Code of Canon Law. These can both be found on the Vatican's website. And uh, if you look at this presentation on YouTube, you'll see that I've got the links uh, in, the, in the pictures here. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is really this, the, the canon law that's written for the parishioners. The canon law is written for the administrators of the faith. But as you'll see, if you can look at the pictures of this, 
they are identical. They're, they're on the same website, same format. All of my sourcing for what is about to come forward is from the Vatican. It's not my opinion. Uh, it's, it's nothing other than what the Catholic Church says about the Catholic Church. To begin, there are lots and lots of issues. This is such a daunting task. I, I mentioned to my wife that um, there is so much information, I don't know where to start. So what I decided to do was, was pick some overall things that I think most people will recognize. With that said, I think that the vast majority of Catholics and this comes from experience. The vast majority of Catholics don't understand everything that the Catholic faith espouses. They have no idea. I know that I didn't. Uh, being very ingrained in the Catholic faith, I had no idea what the Catholic faith actually believed. And so <clears throat> I say that... Um, hesitantly, but please share this with anyone who's Catholic, because I think most Catholics would be enlightened by what they're going to hear here. <laughs> the Catholic Church is the one true church. Now, this is the um, Catholic Catechism number 2105. Most of the things I'm sourcing here are from the Catechism because they are easier to understand. Some of the canon law is written in a way that's a little more difficult to understand. So I'm going to use the catechism that's written toward the parishioners, toward the believers. Number 2105, the duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one church of Christ. By constantly evangelizing men, the church works towards enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, laws and structures of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each man the love of the true and the good. Important line here. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. Christians are called to be the light of the world. Thus, the church shows forth the kingship of Christ over all creation, and in particular, over human societies. End quote. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion, which subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church. It doesn't say it requires them to make known the worship of Christ. It says the one true religion, which is the Catholic and Apostolic Church. I'm going to come back to this later on in this presentation because it's very evident that the church takes priority here. The infallibility of the Catholic Church. Uh, this is Catechism 2035. Quote, The supreme degree of participation in the authority of Christ is ensured by the, charis by the charism, gift, of infallibility. This infallibility extends as far as does the deposit of divine revelation. It also extends to all those elements of doctrine, including morals, without which the saving truths of the faith cannot be preserved, explained, or observed. 
This is saying that the Catholic Church is infallible. Okay? And <clears throat> as far as the divine revelation, this will become a little more clear as we go. Catholic Catechism number 100. This is right at the very beginning. Only the Roman Catholic Church has authority to interpret Scripture. Only the Roman Catholic Church has authority to interpret Scripture. Catholic Catechism number 100, quote, the task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Understand that. That means that we can't grab this Bible and interpret it properly. Only the church. The task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church. The Pope is the head of the church and has the authority of Christ. Catholic Catechism 2034. The Roman pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers that is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ. I'll read that again. The Roman pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers. That is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ. Continuing, who preach the faith to the people entrusted to them, the faith to be believed and put into practice. The ordinary and universal magisterium of the Pope and the bishops in communion with him teach the faithful the truth to believe, the charity to practice, and the beatitude to hope for. The Pope has the authority of Christ. He is infallible. Folks, this is not my words. This is the Vatican's words. Moving on. Catholic Catechism 846. The Roman Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. Number 846, how are we to understand this affirmation often repeated by the church fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ, the head, through the church, which is his body. Basing itself on scripture and tradition. The council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved, who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. Key word here folks, is <clears throat> basing itself on scripture and tradition. And tradition is the biggest problem. 
and the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. We're going to read, as we continue here, we're going to read in the word of God what's necessary for salvation. And I assure you, it is not the Catholic Church. Tradition. Are you ready for this? This is Catholic Catechism number 82. Sacred tradition, tradition in the church, sacred tradition is equal to scripture. We haven't even hit the major stuff here, folks, but this is just part of what the Catholic Church is. Number 82, quote, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted. Revelation is capitalized here, by the way. Does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. I'll read that again. The church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation, capitalized, is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiment of devotion and reverence. This is the Vatican's words, folks, not mine. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiment of devotion and reverence. Anyone who reads this book will not agree with that statement. Forgiveness of sins, salvation, is by faith and works. Catholic Catechism number 2036. The specific precepts of the natural law, because their observance demanded by the Creator is necessary for salvation. <clears throat> number 2080. The Decalogue contains a privileged expression of the natural law. It is made, made known to us by divine revelation and by human reason. The Decalogue contains a privileged expression of the natural law. It is made known to us by divine revelation and by human reason. Number 2068, quote, so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of commandments. Baptism and the observance of commandments along with faith. The full benefit of salvation is only through the Roman Catholic Church in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church. For it says, for it is only through Christ's Catholic Church which is the, quote, all-embracing means of salvation, unquote, that they can benefit fully from the means of salvation. So this is a decree on eucumenism. This is Vatican II, uh, decree number three. I have a picture of this that was done on November 21st, 1964. Um, you'll be able to see it. It's on the Vatican's website. I've got a link to it. Full benefit of salvation is only through the Roman Catholic Church. If you're not in the Roman Catholic Church, you're going straight to hell. Grace can be merited. This is Catholic Catechism number 2010. Moved 
by the Holy Spirit and charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. Number 2027, moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life, as well as necessary temporal goods. Now we're going to move on real quickly. The merit of Mary and the saints can be applied to Catholics and others. This is, um, this is where things get strange. These are things that I had no idea of growing up in the faith. And it, it is things that I don't believe are talked about all that often within the faith. It's one of those things that I think most Catholics have no idea. This is Catholic Catechism number 1477. Quote, this treasury, they call it a treasury. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, just a side note, episode two in this series is on Mary. They are truly immense unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord, and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission in the unity of the mystical body. So the saints and Mary, all of the good things that they did, they have amassed a treasury of good works and prayers and value, okay, that are available to you or to the dead. So if you want to um, pray that someone who died in your family can have access to some of this treasury that will help them pay more quickly for their sins while they're in purgatory, uh, you can do that. I'll get into that a little more in a few slides here. Next slide is on purgatory. Catholic Catechism number 980, penance is necessary for salvation. Number 980, quote, this sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism. Just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn. So just so you understand, if you are not baptized in the Catholic faith, you cannot receive any of the following sacraments. I was trying to think before I started today, there are, I think there are seven sacraments. I could only think of six. I, I'm missing one somewhere. But it begins with baptism, um, the sacrament of penance, sacrament of first holy communion, sacrament of confirmation, sacrament of marriage, and I remember the sacrament of last rites. Uh, there's one I'm missing in there somewhere. You are not eligible to receive any of the sacraments if you're not baptized. So right there, right off the bat, if you're not baptized in the Catholic Church, infant baptism, sprinkling of water, you are not eligible to get anything else, which means you would be damned. So here we're saying in number 980, penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism. And I think the rule is that you need to go to penance at least once a year. I think that's what it was when I was growing up. Um, it might have been less than that. I'm not sure. I know at 
in Catholic grade school, we went a few times a year, but just one more work that needs to be done. Moving on, I'm going to talk to you now about purgatory. This is something that people that aren't even Catholic have heard about. Purgatory is a, a state that's in between heaven and hell. Uh, it's If you want to get into heaven, but you're not completely pure, you go to purgatory and you uh, experience pain and anguish there until all of your sins are paid for. Your sins are washed clean by suffering. And purgatory is a place of temporal suffering. This is Catholic Catechism number 1031. Here is the definition of purgatory from the Vatican. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. Okay, so this is not in the Bible anywhere, just so everyone is aware of that. Catholic Catechism number 1475. In the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expatiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. All right, so there's a link here. There's a perennial link of charity that exists between those in heaven those in purgatory, and those on earth. Between them, there is, too, an abundant exchange of all good things. In this wonderful exchange, the holiness of one profits others, well beyond the harm that the sin of one could cause others. This recourse to the communion of saints lets the contrite sinner be more promptly and efficiently purified of the punishments for sin. So there's a link between those in heaven, those in purgatory, and those on earth. And when we're on earth, and we're praying for grandma who's in purgatory, our good works can help her get out of purgatory quicker. That's Catholic Catechism number 1475. Now, if that wasn't weird enough, indulgences. This is number 1471. The doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. What is an indulgence? An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of the Christ, of Christ and the saints. I'll read that again. That's a mouthful. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins, whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian, who is duly disposed, gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority 
the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. An indulgence is partial or plenary according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply them to the dead. This is kind of like a get out of jail free card. This is a, an indulgence is a mass. So if you want to have a mass for grandma because grandma had some sin and she went to purgatory and you want to have a mass, you can pay the church to have a mass said in her name. That's an indulgence. They don't really get into that, but that's what it is. Number 1478. An indulgence is obtained through the church, who by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints. There's that treasury. There's the treasury. We have a little mass for grandma. She might be a there might be some of the treasury of the saints and Christ and those who made it to heaven. There might be some, uh, some good stuff in the treasury for her. Reading on, to obtain from the Father the mercies, the remission of the temporal punishment. So we'll get rid of some of this temporal punishment due for their sins. Thus, the church does not want simply to come to the aid of these Christians, but also to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. So, all in all, this is sort of designed for you to, this is an encouragement to have good works so that you can build some treasury for those who have died before you and for yourself. Number 1498. Remember, these are the Vatican's words, not mine. Through indulgences, the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment. So you do good, we're going to punish you a little less. Resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. I'll just read that one more time. Through the indulgences the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. <sighs> Number 1472, on the other hand, every sin, even venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. I need some coffee. Okay, I'm going to move on. We're going to talk about Mary very briefly here because Mary is, there are many false doctrines concerning Mary found in Roman Catholicism. I'm going to give you a few. Part two in this series is all on Mary. Number 969, Catholic Catechism number 969, Mary is the mediatrix. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. I'm going to expand greatly on all of this. Number 969, Mary brings us the gifts of eternal salvation. Taken up to heaven, taken up to heaven, she didn't, 
she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. This is Mary, not Jesus. Taken up to heaven, she, not, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Mary delivers souls from death. Catholic Catechism number 966. You, this is Mary, conceive the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. Prayer to the saints, 2677, Catholic Catechism 2677. By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners, and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. Speaking of Mary, not Jesus, we give ourselves over to her now, in the today of our lives, and our trust broadens further, already at the present moment, to surrender the hour of our death holy to her care. We are going to uh, really dive into this, but anyone who's familiar with the Catholic faith understands the role of Mary in the Catholic faith, the role of the Hail Mary uh, prayer. If you're familiar with the uh, rosary, it is 10 Hail Marys, and one Our Father. And so all told, it's 50 Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. Uh, Mary is really the center of worship in the Catholic faith. Um, very quickly, you think of the Immaculate Conception. Most people that are not Catholic think of the Immaculate Conception as that of the Christ child being conceived in Mary through the Holy Spirit without Mary being with a man. The Immaculate Conception is nothing of that. The Immaculate Conception in the Catholic faith is Mary being conceived in her mother with the Holy Spirit, a sinless person. So, Stay tuned for episode two, where we go through Mary, uh, the sinless, ever-virgin Mary. Um, I'll leave it at that. One other major, major issue, uh, and I'm going to cover this in episode three, uh, is the transubstantiation. Now, if you don't know what that word means, um, I'll explain this to you. Transubstantiation is the communion element that becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. Uh, if you go to, a, if anybody's ever gone to a Catholic mass, you know that you get the host, the little wafer. Transubstantiation is what occurs with that wafer. This is Catholic Catechism number 1374. Quote, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. Number 1376, listen closely. The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, quote, because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole 
substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. I will get into this in part three when I go over the Mass, but to give you a broad overview, the little wafer actually becomes Christ, and he is continually sacrificed every Sunday. Not one sacrifice for all, like it says in this book, every Sunday, every Mass. They genuflect in front of this, um, and, and I'll go so far as I'll get into this, but if the priest doesn't say all of the right words while this transubstantiation is taking place, or if he's having a bad day and his intentions are not pure, this is stuff, folks, that 90% of Catholics have no idea of. If that priest's intentions are not pure or he's thinking about the football game, that tr transubstantiation, according to them, doesn't occur. So it's strange. It is very, very strange. So as you can see, there are many errors <clears throat> in the teaching of the church. And like I said, I'm going to get into the last two that I just um, highlighted in episode two and episode three. But to finish out today, there are two more um, errors that really rise to the forefront and call special attention. And it is the denial of the doctrine of sola scriptura and the Catholic Church's denial of the biblical teaching on justification. Because the Catholic Church has refused to submit itself to the authority of Scripture and to embrace the gospel of justification taught in Scripture, it has set itself apart from the true body of Christ. And it pains me to say it is a false and deceptive form of Christianity. So in my opening slide, when I said this is the second largest false deceptive religion on the planet, I mean every word of that. And hopefully you can see why. The doctrine of sola scriptura. This is um, this is something. Sola scriptura is that the the scriptures are the final authority on God's word. And um, I this is uh, this is taken from the Grace to You Church. It's well written. It's John MacArthur, and I'm just going to read this to you. In the words of reformer Martin Luther. The doctrine of sola scriptura means that what is asserted without the scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. Roman Catholicism flatly rejects this principle, adding a host of traditions and church teachings and declaring them binding on all true believers. With the threat of eternal damnation to those who hold contradictory opinions, in Roman Catholicism, the Word of God encompasses not only the Bible, but also the Apocrypha, the Magisterium, the Church's authority to teach and interpret divine truth. The Pope's ex-cathedra pronouncements and an indefinite body of Church tradition, some formalized in canon law and some yet not committed to writing. Whereas evangelical Protestants believe the Bible is the ultimate test of all truth, 
Roman Catholics believe the church determines what is true and what is not. In fact, this makes the church a higher authority than scripture. Creeds and doctrinal statements are certainly important. However, creeds, decisions of church councils, all doctrine, and even the church itself must be judged by scripture, not the other way around. Scripture is to be accurately interpreted in its context by comparing it to Scripture. Certainly not according to anyone's personal whims. Scripture itself is thus the sole binding role, rule of faith and practice for all Christians. Protestant creeds and doctrinal statements simply express the church's collective understanding of the proper interpretation of scripture. In no sense could the creeds and pronouncements of the churches ever constitute an authority equal to or higher than scripture. Scripture always takes priority over the church in the rank of authority. Roman Catholics, on the other hand, believe the infallibility or the infallible touchstone of truth is the church the church not only infallibly determines the proper interpretation of scripture, but it also supplements scripture with traditions and teachings. That combination of church tradition plus the church's interpretation of scripture is what constitutes the binding rule of faith and practice for Catholics. The fact is, the church sets itself above the Holy Scripture in rank of authority. We'll move on to the doctrine of justification and we'll finish this out. According to Catholicism, justification is a process in which God's grace is poured forth into the sinner's heart, making that person progressively more righteous. During this process, it's the sinner's responsibility to preserve and increase that grace by various good works. The means by which justification is initially obtained is not faith, but the sacrament of baptism. As I had mentioned earlier, if you're not baptized, you can't receive any of the following sacraments. Furthermore, justification is forfeited whenever the believer commits a mortal sin, such as hatred or adultery. In the teaching of the Catholic Church, then works are necessary both to begin and continue the process of justification. This error in the church's position can be summed up in four biblical arguments. And we'll wrap it up after this. Number one. Scripture presents justification as instantaneous, not gradual. Contrasting the proud Pharisee with the broken, repentant tax gatherer who smote his breast and prayed humbly for divine mercy, Jesus said that the tax gatherer went to his house justified. That was Luke 18.14. His justification was instantaneous complete before he performed any work. It was based 100% on his faith. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We read, forgive me, I'm paging through my Bible here. Eternal life is present, is the present possession of all who believe. 
And by definition, it can't be lost. The one who believes immediately passes from spiritual death to eternal life. Because that person is instantaneously justified. Let's look at Romans 5, uh, verses 1. You can go 1 through 9. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of, of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's pretty simple. Number two, justification means that the sinner is declared righteous, not made righteous. He's declared righteous, not made righteous. This goes hand in hand with the fact that justification is instant. There is no process to be informed, to be performed. Justification is purely a forensic reality, a declaration God makes about the sinner. It takes place in the court of God, not in the soul of the sinner. It is an objective fact, not a subjective phenomenon. And it changes the sinner's status not his nature. Justification is immediate. Number three, the Bible teaches that justification means righteousness is imputed, not infused. It's reckoned or credited to the account of those who believe. If we look at Romans, Romans 4, verse 3. And you can read, you can read all of the rest of uh, Romans from here, but for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as, as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You can go through and read the whole rest of that chapter. They stand justified before God, be, not because of their righteousness, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. They are, because of a perfect righteousness outside of themselves that is reckoned to them by faith, Philippians 
and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which, which comes from God on the basis of faith. Where does that righteousness come from? It's from God's own righteousness. Again, back to Romans. You can take everything to Romans. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's Romans 3.10. I'm sorry, 10.3. Romans 10.3. And it is the believers in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30. This is all biblical. None of what this church, this Catholic faith is doing, is biblical. First Corinthians 1, verse 30. But by doing, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ's own perfect righteousness is credited to the believer's personal account. Again to Romans 5, 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. I mean, we just keep going and going and going and going and going. We can do this all day. In the interest of time, I'll move on. There are many, 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 many scriptures that we can go through that will point to the fact that there are no works you can do. Justification is based on your faith. Last argument, number four. Scripture clearly teaches that man is justified by faith alone, not by faith plus works. According to the Apostle Paul, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. A man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I think we know that. In contrast, Roman Catholicism places an undue stress on human works. Catholic doctrine denies that God justifies the ungodly. Adding works to faith as the grounds of justification is precisely the teaching that Paul condemned as a different gospel. There are many scripture references to this. Second Corinthians 11.4, Galatians 1.6, Galatians 2.21. Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In conclusion, as long as the Roman Catholic Church continues to assert its own authority and bind its people to another gospel, it is the spiritual duty of all true Christians to oppose Roman Catholic doctrine with biblical truth and to call all Catholics to true salvation.
Meanwhile, we must not capitulate to the pressures for unity, like the Pope is doing right now. They cannot allow the gospel to be obscured, and they cannot make friends with false religions, lest they become partakers in their evil deeds. I'm going to finish out with 2 John, verse 10 and 11. You know, there's this huge call by the Pope for unity. We can't do that, folks. If you are a Christian, if you are truly a Christian, you must oppose this doctrine. And we must call our Catholic brothers and sisters out of that faith. We have to share the word with them. That was one of the things when I first became saved, I went, man, was I deceived. I have got to go get these people. And it's been two years. I haven't felt like I've been ready. It's a daunting task. But we need to share this. Second John, verse 10, 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Don't participate. Share the truth. Oppose Roman Catholic doctrine. And do it out of love. For our brothers and sisters who are deceived in that faith. God be with you. Look for episode two next Monday, which will be on the worship of Mary. God bless you.